And now, here's your host of Shaping Success, Wes Tankersley. What is up, everyone? Welcome to Shaping Success. I'm your host, Wes Tankersley. Today, we have an awesome guest here. Um, he is a former vet, a father, as well as a guitarist for a little band you might know called Three Doors Down. Chris Henderson, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, it's it's super interesting. A lot of things always happen. You know, you try to reach out to these people who are kind of like, let's get certain people on the show. And um, I posted something on TikTok, and then you responded to it quite a while ago. I posted it on Instagram, actually, and then you responded to it. And I was kind of like, hey, this is really cool. And then you start kind of diving into things, and it's really exciting to just kind of reach out and see if we can get certain people on. But um, I think that you have a great story and I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. You know, most people see you as this, you know, this successful guitarist of a band, but they don't know, you know, a lot about your story. Can you tell us a little bit kind of about like where you grew up and your childhood and, and, you know, how you got into guitar? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, so my childhood, um, I'll start right from the beginning, but I started uh, let's see. Pretty rough childhood, to be honest with you. It wasn't really, it wasn't really, um, the greatest childhood that people could probably imagine. But, um, you know, so, so my parents divorced. I was really young. My dad left when I was three, something like that. I didn't really see the guy again until, I don't know, maybe, maybe 12, 13. Um, so he was out of the picture. My, my, my mom was a, a career student. So she's got a degree in law, degree in business, a degree in music, you know, all these different degrees. So all this, she just went to school the whole time I was growing up. And uh, so I had a brother, his name was Edward. And uh, he, um, for lack of a better term, has like a photographic memory. He can re remember all these things. He reads all these different things. And he got into music, started learning to read music. And uh, just basically, you know, from the fact that our parents were doing what they were doing, I guess he went straight into music as hard as he could. I went straight into everything but that as, as far as playing. Um, and so I grew up, you know, on the wrong side of the tracks, if, if that makes sense. Got a lot, started getting in a lot of trouble. Um, wasn't really doing, I was playing guitar a little bit. I started playing guitar around six, but I really didn't, you know, I'd play for a day or two and put it in the closet, if that makes sense. And, uh, and just go about my life. Um, I didn't really start playing until around 13 when I got kicked out of my, out of my mom, kicked me out of the, uh, out of her house and sent me to live with my dad, who I, like I said before, I didn't really, uh, I didn't know the guy that well, but my dad lived in Montana and, uh, and it was the middle of winter. Oh, dang. So it was me and a, and a guitar, a, it was a flying V from, uh, Sears and Robux, I think was where, where my mom got it from. And, uh. And a boombox, like a um, like a, a cassette player that I could plug my guitar into, it sounded like shit. I mean, it was it was horrible. <laughs> but I that sounded good back in the, the day, sound. right? <laughs> no, it, it did not. It didn't at all. <laughs> I couldn't mimic any of the sounds that I was trying to mimic. I couldn't figure out the distortion. I couldn't figure out anything on the guitar. And I had a book. It was a Mel Bay Guitar Method One. And uh, I remember when I was uh, when I was six, I took a lesson, and the guitar teacher told me how to hear. You know, she, she didn't teach me how to hear it. I could just hear it. But in between the notes, when they're not in tune, there's these beats that they wobble, wobble, wobble. They kind of wobble, wobble, wobble. And as you get them in tune, they slow down and then they stop, right? Yeah. And that's when the strings are in tune. So she showed me how to tune the guitar just to ear and then how to read the notes on the first string and how to count, you know, four, four, two, four, three, four, all that, all the different time signatures just in that one lesson. And uh, it was just basically in the book, I could just read. So I was like, well, I don't need to go back to her. So I started teaching myself to read music in Montana. I had nothing but time on my hands. Um, cause I didn't have any friends, my dad and we lived, it was very remote where we lived. Um, we lived in a cabin on the side of a mountain and it was just me and lots of time, man. And I started banging out, uh, you know, like these little weird little tunes that were in this book. Cause all I had, and I had two records. I had Queensryche, uh, warning and uh, Iron Maiden Power Slave. Only two tapes I had. When I yep. say tapes, it was cassettes back then. Yep. And uh, so I just sat and tried to learn every little piece of those for about a year. And I just, you know, literally woodshedded because I lived in a fucking woodshed. <laughs> was know? there, it was kind of like buried in the snow too. Was there a lot of snow up there? Because I know that I'm in Idaho. So Montana's, you know, a little bit east, but there's yeah. 
a lot of snow over there. I never saw the ground, man, really. I mean, until, you know, until spring and summer, but it wasn't that long and it started snowing again up there. I mean, I lived in, I lived in a, a place called Swan Lake. It's between Big Fork and Kalispell. Uh huh. So it's like way up there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, uh, and I'm from, man, I mean, you hear my voice. I ain't, I'm not from Montana. Right. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it, it was culture shock for me. Yeah. Where did, so where were you? You were in, is it Mississippi or Tennessee? Where were you at when you grew, when you were younger before you moved in with your dad? Well, so I was actually born in Maryland. Maryland, okay. And I lived in Maryland until I was about 13. Well, we, my mom moved to Florida to go to law school. Or to what, I forget what school she was going to down there. She moved to Florida to go to some school. And so I went with her. As soon as I got to Florida, man, I was right in trouble with the cops again. I'd already had a couple of felonies, you know, as a, as a, as a, um, as a juvenile. Um, like I said, you know, the, the stuff I went through as a kid, which I don't go into any, many details with that. A lot of that's really, uh, that, that'd be for another a, yeah. a different show. Sure. Um, but uh, the stuff that I went through, man, like, it just like, what did you think was going to happen? You know, I, I, I turned into a pretty rough, rough child. A lot, of, a lot of fighting and, you know, really didn't do very well in school until high school. Because I, I, I started turning things around. Um, around Montana, you know, when I because it was a lot of time just like inside here. Right. You know, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have, uh, like I said, to have any friends uh, at home um, at all. None. My dog. Yeah. I don't even think my dog liked me that much. Um, so I just spent a lot of time by myself. And, uh, and I started to figure, I started to figure things out, I think, without being taught because my parents I don't, I mean, hate that my dad just passed away. I don't want to say many bad things about him, but he didn't teach me many things about, about what you should be teaching kids. You know what right. I mean? He kind of like left me to my own devices. Yeah. So, yeah. So you learned how to play guitar kind of after that. And then you ended up, did you go to high school in Montana? Is that kind of where you ended up going to high school or? No. So I went to, I went back to Mississippi and uh, went to a, uh, a junior high called Ed Mayo. And it was about, Ed Mayo was about, uh, I'd say 94% black, about 6% white. It was, it was, it's in a town called Moss Point, and it's a predominantly black town. And I lived on the outskirts of that town, and, and I went to that school and um, played football there. Okay. I made a lot of great friends, man, and, uh, and learned a lot of different things and picked up some different flavors on, of music because at that time see i already did that year in montana where i played guitar so i was kind of i was kind of okay at it at this point people yeah. knew me as a guitar player in in the ninth it was in the ninth grade and they knew they, like that's the guy that plays guitar so um i had gotten that good at least where people knew and um i met a couple guys there that you know a couple blues guys one one blues guys in particular blue blues guy in particular became real good friends with me and we just started you know riffing back and forth and hanging out pretty much constantly all day long. Um, there's another kid there that played drums. His name's Greg. And, uh, he was a really good drummer for, for a ninth grader. And we started kind of like, you know, trying to play songs and trying to put songs together and play things and a lot of Skinner and a lot of stuff like that. And it was Mississippi. Um, I lived in a remote place <laughs> again yeah. and I uh, had a lot of time. So I sat and, and I played guitar, man. And I played guitar for, Oh shit! From the ninth grade till the time I joined the Navy is eight and eighteen. Um, I played guitar every single day. How and, much did uh, you play when you were younger? Was it like you know you'd get home from school and you'd be playing, or did you take your guitar with you to school and stuff, or what? What was that like? Well, man, I got to be honest with you. So there, there's a part of this story that you're not going to believe that it's, it's going to, and you're not going to believe how I did it. Did it because I don't know how I really did it, but I just did. So. um my my dad was married to a um for lack of a better term a religious tyrant she was uh jehovah's witness you know no and i mean not a one that that you hear about like knocking on your door not one of those she was like a fundamentalist and and, and so right. there was no music there was no dancing there was no tv there was no books there were no any of this stuff you know what i mean like rock and roll fuck you man you couldn't no way it's not yeah. gonna happen not, not in my house and um I grew up in that house, and so I had to take my my music elsewhere. Okay. So I learned to play guitar at friends' houses, and uh, I li I literally dropped my guitar off at a buddy's, and I was like, "Hey, man, you know, can I leave this here?" 
because I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose this at some point. I was afraid that she's going to take my guitar from me. Uh-huh. So I left it at a friend's house. And so every single day I'd get up in the morning and, um, you know, I had my, I had my chores to do. Um, if I wanted to get to my guitar, I had to do these, these lists that she'd make these lists of chores for me to do around the house. And, um, you know, I, I at first I resented it, but cause I had to do all this stuff to get to my guitar and I, I hated to have to do that, but it, it installed a work ethic in me that, um, I think helped me become a better player because I worked really hard because she was really strict and, and about not only about like the rules of my life, but like how I did those chores. Like she would come back and, and check behind me every yeah. single thing she asked me to do or told me to do. And if it wasn't done right, man, the next day was a rough day. And, uh, so I did, I did shit right. And, uh, and that's how I got out of there. And I started, I do my chores, boom, hit the road. And, uh, so do you think that like that kind of put, you know, I played sports in in high school and that was kind of what made me have that work ethic like the timing of, you know, being on time, doing the things that you're supposed to do, following direction, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am type of thing. Do you think that that kind of helped you, you know, along the way kind of get that structure that you were missing when you were younger? I think it did, man. But, um, you know, it was like I said, it was never, it was never like taught to me that no one ever said, Hey, you know, this is how you do life. This is how you, you know, this is how you get out of bed in the morning. No one ever said anything to me about any of that. They just basically, you know, shoved these pieces of paper in my face and, and walked away and expected me to do everything and get it all done. And I kind of learned how to put that together. And, and, um, so I lived, um, like nine and a half miles away from my high school where I went to high school and I played high school football. Um, and I mean, I played it and I dedicated my life to it, um, to the weight room, everything. And, um, uh, played at a really, uh, a, a, again, the, this high school I went to was, was, uh, was about, it wasn't as, um, um, the, 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 the white and the black kids, there was, there was more white kids at the high school, but the football team, was a lot of black kids and, and, and just a few white kids. And, um, I, man, I, I loved it. And, and, and I rode my bike to school for two day practices. So oh, nine miles yeah, twice a day, you know, so that's 18 miles, eat a little bit, get back on your bike, boom, another nine yeah. miles and then another nine miles. And I did that every year. And my coaches, man, like I wasn't the greatest, uh, football player of all time, uh, but my coaches noticed that I did that. And I never went in and told him I, and said, "Hey, coach, you know, I ride my bike to school every day and uh, and come to two days, you know, riding all this, all this, all these miles." I never, I never mentioned it to him. I just did it, and uh, and I was, never missed a practice ever. Always, always at practice, and it wasn't because I loved football practice. Because man, it's Mississippi. It's hot and it was tough and it was hard, man. Um, but I just didn't want to be at my my house. It was an I just escape. Didn't want to be home. Yeah. And, and so football season, baseball season, and in between, um, in between sports, I played guitar. But everything I did, I did away from my home. I didn't. I just got out of there as quick as I could and um, every single day. And I did that my whole childhood and until the day I left. And I, I spent as little time at home as I possibly could and, and played guitar and played sports. And, you know, I, I knew – I knew that football wasn't going to work out for me, you know, the next level because I'm only 5'10". And, uh, I was a middle linebacker for a couple of years. That didn't, you know, I, I wasn't as good at middle linebacker as I was at, at offensive line. So my coaches were like, we want to move you from defense to offense. Uh, you got to learn all these plays now and, uh, and all that good stuff. And so I started studying football and, uh, I, you know, I did it, man. And I, and I went from middle linebacker, a third string middle linebacker to first string center and started for two years and um, really appreciated like that move. I didn't like it at first. I was kind of sick to my stomach because I mean, I was a defensive yeah. player and there's a lot of glory in defense and uh, and not much on the offensive line. But uh, but I did it, man. And I'm glad I did. It's I'm funny. I, I was an offensive tackle and I played center a little bit in middle school, but it was it was that's a tough position. That's a tough it's one tough, to learn. Man anyway yeah. but i loved I, I i could play both ways right so i played offensive tackle and then i played defensive tackle but i just i don't know why i just had this love for offense and it's it's kind of weird because it's an unforgiving and it's un you know people don't put a lot of stress on hey that's one of the best positions in the whole team you just don't hear about it they just don't give you any glory no 
So, you know, and, and you know, one of the things that I think that they fail to mention about those, the offensive line, especially is the amount of technique it takes for you to just be on the, not to just be on the field, but in order to maneuver and to block someone, to stay on your feet, blocking someone who's really strong and doesn't want to be blocked. Right. You have to like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything has to be working. Like you can't be slew footed. You have to be like, everything's got to be straight. And, yeah. You know, it takes a lot of like mechanical practice and a lot of long hours of, of doing really weird things to be able to play those positions. And uh, I mean, I'm, like I said, I think it really helped me later in life being, being yeah. able to do that. Well, they always call you a big dumb lineman anyway. It's like, that's all you do. But guess what? Without us, <laughs> there's no you. <laughs> Man, I know. And, 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 I'm, and I'm sitting here remembering like 75 different blocking schemes. And, I, and, and being the center, I couldn't just, I, it wasn't just me. I had to know everybody. Right. You know what I mean? Because I had to know where you were going to be, and I had to know, you know. Yeah, it's it's, it's a tough one. That's the hardest part about that. It's like, not only that, you got to snap the ball, too, and hope that you get that clean and then do your yeah, job. Yeah, right. i tell you what I did. I just tried to break that dude's hands. <laughs> yeah, I exactly. Tried to, tried to give it to him as hard as I could. So after after high school, you headed off to the Navy. I did, what, yes. What, I did. what gave you the idea to do that? I mean, I, I know, and I'm grateful for all of our veterans – I was a chicken shit. I didn't want to go anywhere. Um, after I graduated high school, the the war in Iraq broke out. It was, <laughs> I was like doing yeah. everything I could to not go there. But there's people like you that I really appreciate the fact that you go out and you willing to do that. What kind of drove you that way? Well, a lot of it was my parents, I think. My dad was in the Air Force. My grandfather was like a, uh, and then and my grandfather was, was a war hero. You know what I mean? Like he was decorated the Navy, uh, the, the, the Navy flying cross, he was, all this stuff. He was the CEO of the test pilot school. He was an enlisted man that went officer and became a captain. Like one of the only ones that did and, uh, flew PBYs and, um, was in Pearl Harbor, like all these different things this guy did. And, um, so I always had my grandfather kind of in my head throughout, you know, he died when I was really young. So I didn't really know him that well, but just through family and people talking and, uh, my grandfather basically became um, my hero in childhood, just because it was he was an implied hero. Because I never yeah. really knew him that well. But I made I made something of that in my head, and and it gave me something to look up to. And I wanted to be like that. I wanted to serve my country, and I wanted to. So that was always an option for me. But I also wanted to go to college, but. Um, like I said, I didn't have anyone teaching me that there's a path to college that you have to take. There's certain things you have to do and certain tests you have to take and certain, you know, grades have to be met. And it takes, it takes, uh, what do they call them? People at the, in, uh, in the school system that I never really got to talk to the counselors, the, uh, career counselors. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like where the hell was my, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any of that, uh, in high school. I was just basically flying by, flying by my own, um, on my own. And, uh, so when I graduated, I hadn't done any of those things or prerequisites to go to school. So that was that wasn't going to be an option, and I'm not, I don't think that. Um, and I mean, I'd have figured it out, but it just wasn't an option. So it's definitely interesting but, how things are today in school. Because I was a before what I do now. Like I sell window coverings. Um, I'm a, a window covering salesman by day, right? But mm -hmm. I used to, I was a PE teacher for four years, and I was in the high school education system, and they take days to administer the SAT. They take days to administer. Yeah. Um, what's the exam they take for the military? I can't even remember. It's I've lost on ASVAB. It right now. the ASVAB. They the take ASVAB. a day to, yeah, I took that yeah. So they take days to administer that stuff. And you know, when I was in high school, that didn't happen. It was like, you had to, I, I lived in Ontario, Oregon, which is 60 miles away from where I live in Boise right now. And I had to drive to Boise to go take the SAT and the ACT. And it's like, they didn't do that there. It's, it's way yeah. different now than it was then. So. Yeah, they didn't do it when I was growing up either. I didn't even know what the SAT was. And, and uh, so I applied to uh, the University of, of, uh, of Tampa, and I was going to try to play football there. And um, there, there was a first-year football team. And, I mean, like I said, I, wasn't, uh, I, was, I was a good player, but I wasn't really big. So it wasn't like I was going to go to a D1 school. So, But I was looking for a place to play football, to go to the next level. And uh, that was an option for me, to play football there. But then there was this test that I hadn't taken. You know, and I was like, yeah. wait a minute. So I got to take a test to come play football. And, but apparently you did. So uh, that didn't happen. So 
I'll come back to the Jehovah's Witness thing uh, a little bit. So, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, no birthdays, no none of that stuff. So I never really got anything for my birthday uh, growing up, um, except um, right around April and May is when uh, you graduate in Mississippi. About May 26th, May 27th is the last day of school every year. And uh, my birthday is April 30th. So I say this is my birthday present, but my dad gave me an envelope that had a $20 bill in it. And every recruiter card, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, you know what I mean? And he was basically saying, hey, you know, you did it. You graduated high school. It's time for you to go somewhere. Here's a, you know, here's a bus fare or whatever it is you do with this 20, and here's where you need to go. And so I went and I oh, saw okay. the Army first. And uh, the Army, um, I took the ASVAB, scored, you know, whatever you, everybody scores on that thing. I scored well. Um the Army wanted me to, to become, uh, I forget what, what the MOS was going to be, but it was going to be a field. It wasn't going to be a, um, a, a specialized job. And I wanted yeah. some special, I wanted to be, I wanted to train. I wanted to be trained. I wanted to come out of the military with something because right. I felt like I was bringing something to them, you know, um, which is weird. A lot of kids just sign on the dotted line and go do whatever, but I, I wanted specific. But um, what I mentioned earlier is I had some, some felonies um, as a kid some burglaries and some different things that, you know, that kids do, uh, kids like me did. Um, but I had turned this whole thing around. Like I went from not being able to go to school to being a pretty much a straight A student in high school. So I went oh, to yeah. school every day, never missed a day, never missed practice. Cause like I said, I didn't want to go home. Didn't want to be home. <laughs> didn't want to be home. So yeah. I went to school and I did. And while I was there, I was like, shit, I might as well do this. And, uh, so I applied myself, man. And I, I did really well. Um, graduated with honors. Um, so I went to the army and the recruiter was like, well, since you've got these felonies, there's about five things you can do. And they all pretty much, you know, uh, have to do with being shot at. And, uh, I was like, man, you know, like I can do that. I guess I could go learn to, to, to be infantry or whatever it is you want me to do, but let me just ask around. So I went to talk to the air force. Air force said no, uh, that because of my felonies, the coast guard also said no. Um, I was thinking about my grandfather's of the Navy. And I was like, let me go talk to the Navy recruiter. And I, and I went to the Navy guy's office and dude, man, he was such a cool guy. And, uh, he was a CB and, um, he basically said, Hey man, let's pick some jobs. These are the things that you qualify for. And we will put it in writing that you will do this job and you will go here and you will do this. And so I joined the Navy and, um, I signed up to be a support equipment technician which is a, uh, if you ever, you know, you go to the airport and you sit on the plane, all the little trucks and little cars and things that ride around the airplanes. Yeah. That's support equipment. Those are support equipment. And, uh, so there's air conditioning, there's hydraulic systems, there's all these things because they hook these things to the airplanes and do all the testing of all the systems while the plane's on the ground. Well, I worked on all of those things. Yeah. And the school was, um, there's 31 weeks, I think. Or may maybe I'm lying. It was long. It was a long school, but, uh, um, I went to gasoline, diesel, engine school, transmission, so car transmissions, um, electrical, basic electronics, and um, circuits. So I was able to, uh, what they called um, component repair, like taking resistors and transistors and other solder boards. Right. So troubleshooting solder boards and um, uh, what else was it? It was cryogenics. So, you know, all, man, I learned so much stuff and... I went and I did that job in the Navy and it was so many things to learn that I never stopped learning. I was just always learning, learning, right. learning and in books, in books, in books. And I spent four years active duty. And during that four years, um, not only did I learn how to fight um, in bars and stuff like that, um, but I also, <laughs> I also took uh, those four years to learn different things. So I taught myself three phase electricity, uh, motor rewinding, stuff like that, um, generator, repair, um, basic, like, uh, residential and commercial electricity. I just wrote, I read a lot of books and I started taking these tests that the Navy would administer these tests to you for free. And if you pass them, you got that qualification. So I started qualifying to do different things. Where's your guitar through this whole thing? Where's it at? Every day, every day. Every day. You were morning. still playing. Yeah. yeah. Every day. And, um, and I, I, the thing about me was like, I didn't know what to practice. So I never had someone going, Hey, this scale, this is that, this is the key of this. It was just me and Metallica and me and Megadeth and me and just my friends and just playing, you know, putting a tape in and trying to learn it. Yeah. That's how I learned. And, um, I did it every single day. And, um, 
and the whole time in the Navy, and, you know, um, and I was in a 90, I went in 89, got out in 93, off active duty, didn't really get out until way later. But, um, you know, that, the first Gulf War broke out then. And uh-huh. um, so a lot of the training that I, a lot of the things I was doing when that happened stopped and the Navy was like, hey, we need you to do this now, you know. So I went and I did some, uh, uh, I went to basically the military police academy. And, uh-huh. um, and, but it wasn't um, one that I went to. They set it up at, on the base that I was on and they had some Marines come in. And these Marines taught us, you know, uh, some weapons and some different, some combat things and some different things, law enforcement type stuff, but some small team tactic stuff, which I was like, wow, this is really cool. I like this. Um, I like this kind of like the specialized thing that I'm getting. And I learned how to, um, to tear down and, and, and clean and put back together 45s and, and uh, what well, they had back then, the M16s, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I started learning kind of weapons and, and things like that and how to operate and how to shoot, but not only how to shoot, how to shoot properly and how to, uh, um, you know, the different techniques it takes to become a shooter and all the things right. like I was talking about football. There were all these different things that you had to like, you know, body positioning and, and, and feet. And, and I respond to that. I love that kind of stuff. So that I was into that and I wanted to go and do that now somehow. Yeah. So my, my focus started shifting a bit from be, becoming the best all around, um, most knowledgeable kind of like handicrafts guy that I could possibly be to now being, uh, something, you know, some combat guy that I wanted to be, but really just wanted to be a cop. Yeah. So, you know, but they don't really hire lots of cops with felony convictions. So I didn't really know how it was going to work, but the Navy didn't mind. And so I became a police officer basically, yeah. which was really fun. I, I love that work. It was really cool. I enjoyed it. So when, so how long did that go? And when did you get out of the Navy? What year were you out of the Navy? Got out off active duty in 93, and I did two years in the stupid Army. Uh, God, it was horrible. It, was, uh, it wasn't really the Army. It was the, uh, the National Guard or the, what do you call it? Yeah, the, the Mississippi National Guard. Okay. And, uh, and I was in an engineering battalion. I went to Navy dive school at the end of, at the end of my first four years of, of school. Um, I met this, uh, this guy as a SEAL, and he was like, hey, man, you know, I'm going to we're going to be working out on the beach and doing all this seal stuff. If you want to join. And like I said, you know, I told you, I love, I love that shit. So I started working out with this guy and, um, applied to, applied to, um, to EOD assistant, which is, um, I don't know the EOD or bomb, bomb technicians, but I didn't have enough. Um, you have to be E5 or above. I was only E4. So I had to apply for the, like the underling, uh, yeah. but I still want, would go to dive school and become a diver. And that's what I wanted to kind of do. And then uh, I applied for EOD assistant and second class diver. And um, the packages and the way that you do that takes a really long time. It's like a nine or 10 month process. You have to take these uh, these physical tests and lots of written tests and stuff. And uh, I had to go see these diver detailers and I had to go meet all these different people. And it took a really long time, And uh, but I got it and I got accepted to second class dive school. So right at the end of my first four years of active duty, I went to this school. And when I got there, I just kind of was like, do I want to do just this for the rest of my life? Like, do I want to be a diver for the rest of my life? Cause this, that was about what was about to happen. Right. If I graduated that school, the Navy was going to require me require another uh, four years of active duty. And I was going to be whatever they wanted me to be. And, uh, right thought about it. And I was like, you know what? There might be other opportunities out there for me and I'm playing guitar. You know, I'm still playing every day. So I went to the, um, there's a detailer at that dive school and I went to him and I told him the truth. I was like, man, I'm thinking that maybe this isn't what I want to do. And he's like, Hey, no problem. He's like, why don't you take, take a weekend, you know, I'll give you a Friday off. He goes, go home and just kind of think about it. So I went home and applied for a job in a shipyard as a helper. Um, English shipbuilding. And I went on an interview that Monday. I applied for the job on Friday, went for my interview on Monday. And I sat down in front of that guy and he started asking me questions. And I just started, you know, telling him about all the stuff I learned in the books. And he was like, man, I'm not going to hire you as a helper. He's like, I'll hire you as a first class electrician, you know? So I was basically the youngest first class electrician that he had ever hired. Cause I was like basically barely 20, Barely 21, 22, yeah. you know, and this is a journeyman position, like people with 12 years experience. And I had none of that. I didn't know what the fuck this guy was talking about. He was going to hire me as a first class. And I went home and told my dad, my dad was like, are you crazy? 
said, you can't do that job. He's like, you're going you're, you're to tear something up out there. So, but I did it, man. I, uh, I showed up on the first day as a first class electrician, not knowing anything about what was going on out there and, and like shipbuilding and how things really worked. And the ship electricity is different, right? Cause they split everything right. in half. <laughs> so it's 55 here, 55 here, and you're standing on the ground. So any, the ground is the ship. So anytime you touch something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> so you gotta, be, you gotta be doubly careful. Um, cause 55 volts will kill you too. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I went in there blind, man. I didn't know anything about it. And like, um, my supervisor, he realized after about a week that I wasn't supposed to be there. And he pulled me off to the side and he said, Hey man, he's like, uh, I don't know how you got this job. He's like, but you did. He's like, but I'm going to give you about another, probably I'll give you 25, 30 days to learn. And then I'm gonna have to let you go. And so I was like, fuck man. Um, I got to figure this out. So I started like staying after and, and going in a little bit early and talking to people and asking lots of questions. And I learned how to do that job, man. And, um, taught myself marine electricity on my feet with a hammer and a, and, 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 and at that time, um, in the shipyard, there was an opportunity to become a combination so I could learn how to weld. So I learned how to weld. And uh, basically, I'd go into these compartments on these ships and put all the lights up and then wire them and then put all the receptacles up and wire them and all the switches up and wire them. You know, so it's a pretty cool that job. Just, I liked it. That is so awesome. Like, I, I just, you think about the lost art of being a jack of all trades. Like, my dad, my dad could do pretty much anything and it's amazing. And I try to learn whatever I can from him, but he, you know, motors and cars, odd, yeah. you know, building things, you know, we put countertops in his house. I mean, there's all these things that, that are skills that we don't teach anymore because they don't even have those classes in school. It's stupid. Right. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Like, like they took Votech out and, you know, I didn't even do Votech. I did Votech in the Navy basically, which was, yeah. uh, which was, but man, I tell you that job in that shipyard, um, with I, I hired in, I can't remember the exact date, but within a year and a half, I was a, a, what they call a lead man. So I was right under my supervisor and my crew, and my supervisor was right, about ready to retire. So he just stopped showing up to work pretty much. Yeah, you know what I mean. And the next thing I know, I'm the I'm this crew supervisor, but no one in the like no one in the shipbuilding like the the administration side knew it. They knew I was a lead man. They didn't know that I. That they didn't know that my supervisor wasn't showing up. He was on salary, so he was just like, I guess whatever they did, and then go home, <laughs> yeah. you know, and leave it to me. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty fun job, and uh, and I went from there. All right, so uh, I would, while I was there, um, they they started talking about layoffs or laying off a bunch of people. So I applied for the fire department, the um, the uh, Moss Point fire department with the, the town I lived in. And I got the job, actually got the job, became a firefighter. Was there about six months. Um, wasn't, wasn't there very long. And that's the only job I ever was asked to like, they didn't like come in and go, Hey, you're fired. But the guy like, let me go. They, they, um, he, he thought that, and he's probably right. I don't even know. He thought that I'd be, uh, I was such a hard sleeper that I wouldn't hear the fire phone go off. And the oh, fire phone was just really low. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and I was, I was a kid, you know what I mean? I was 20, 22 years old. So I was doing all the things kids do. I was staying out too late. I was drinking way too much. And I was playing right. in a rock band at this point. I started playing in a band called the union with Todd, our, our uh, three doors bass player. Okay. Um, and a couple friends from high school and um, we were doing bar gigs and staying out, you know, play, I mean, we we're partying man and doing it right. Yeah. But I was still trying to, trying to do a career change into uh into this, you know, into this field that was, uh, was totally new to me, you know, medicine, the medical part of it, the, uh, the first responder, the EMT, you know, doing IVs and all these different things that I was going to be learning to do would have been a completely different trade that I'd ever done in my entire life. I'd never given a shot. I'd never done any of these things and I was about to learn. And, um, that scared the shit out of me, but I, I was going to do it. You yeah. know what I mean? I was just going to do it. And, um, yeah, but so about six, about six months into that, the chief came and he's like, Hey man, I'm gonna have to let you go. And he's like, I'm really sorry. I don't want to, but I have to. And I was like, all right, man, you know, whatever I get it. You guys think I'm a hard sleeper. I mean, it was rough because like I had, uh, in the shipyard I made like back then it was like 15 bucks an hour. I think back then, which was a lot of damn money, a lot of um, money. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I went from 15 to eight 
to eight dollars oh. an hour to take the firefighting job. So I cut my pay in half, and I mean, right. I was struggling financially. Um, and this guy was getting ready to fire, let me go. So I, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, but that led me to my next job, which uh, led me to the you know to three doors. But so so Todd and I played in this band called the Union, and um, the singer of that band, his name is Sean, super nice guy. Decided one day that he you know he was the songwriter, he was the guy, he was gonna you know no one else was was ever as dedicated as he was. So he was going to quit and go to Nashville to become a songwriter. So that band broke up. Uh huh. And uh, and we had some you know. Had some good times and some and played some big ass shows as as a local band and uh and had written some songs that you know to be fair they were that i didn't write them um but i was just kind of like in the band the songs already written when i got there but they were good songs man and um i think that that band had a shot to actually do something it, it felt like it did and um but it broke but the, but it broke up and and that led so todd Went back home. To, he lived in Escatawa. I lived in uh, Moss Point, but I moved to Escatawa. So Todd went back to um, Escatawa, and that's when Three Doors started. And that was around uh -huh. 90, probably 94, 95. Like Three Doors started. It was Matt, Matt Roberts, Brad uh, Arnold, and then Todd Harrell. And they had another cat. I can't remember his name. Uh, he didn't last long. He's a little dickhead. Um, ended up, ended up like taking a, uh, trying to sue us years later for songs that he had fucking nothing to do. He tried to sue us for a local H song. Remember that local H, that band? Oh, local. Yeah. It, Chicago. it sounds familiar. It was in the early nineties, but they had a really big song. And uh, this kid was suing us for that other band song because it was a, a, a song that three doors covered in there. And he was like, Oh yeah, uh, I wrote that song. What an idiot. Anyways. Yeah. Um, but that's how that happened. And so I, I joined a band called Burning Bridges and, and uh, Burning Bridges from the union to Burning Bridges was, uh, they were different. There's kind of progressive um, musicians type stuff, like not anything anyone wanted to hear really, yeah. but it was really fun to play. And they had the reputation around town as being the, the, uh, the, the old musician guys. And I went right there and, and, and joined that band, had a lot of fun, man. And I learned how to, how to, uh, um, like I learned how to play with technical people uh -huh. because the first band was just banging around on a guitar. It was just, you know, it was easy, bouncy rock and roll. This band was not like that. It was, it was a lot different. I had to, I had to really apply myself to play yeah. in this band. And, uh, and I did. And like I said, I was still playing guitar every day, even, even then. And, uh, I carried my guitar with me in my car. So anywhere I had time to sit down and practice, I would, I'd sit down and just play for an hour here and there and, uh, other people's houses mostly. Um, that's how I'd always done it. You know, even as yeah. a kid, I'd, like I told you before, I always played somewhere else, never at home. And I'm still like that. I still don't play where I live. I go somewhere else to play. <laughs> Man, it's kind of weird, but I keep doing it. Old habits um, die hard, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they do. But uh, so Brad and Matt and Todd, they kicked this other guy out. So they became a three piece. And the first song I ever heard them play they play, I was at todd's trailer in escatawa man and i was always there because we we're all best friends and you know i was at three doors first practice and uh and i was at their last practice so yeah. uh, uh so i've been around i've been around them a long time and i've always known them and i went to school with brad's sisters and um you know me and todd i lived with todd we played junior high football together at, at magnolia um and all through high school so i've known him my whole life but uh life on my own was uh was was written and I heard that and I was like, Jesus, man, like that is a fucking good, that's a good song. Like I, I could feel it in my bones. And it wasn't long after that Loser was written and um, Kryptonite was uh -huh. written. And I mean, like within a couple of weeks, this was yeah. boom, 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 boom. These were like three of the biggest songs in, of an era. The Light Life Mine wasn't a single, but if it would have been, it would have been a good one. Um, but Loser and Kryptonite, like Kryptonite was number one at pop, rock, alternative and whatever else there was back then all at the same time it had never right. been done in the history of music by anybody and that song and that, and that that song was written by brad in algebra class he was 16 yeah you know and that's it's just amazing nuts? yeah yeah and you know i didn't realize this until a couple of days ago so i feel like kind of a jackass but he played the drums and sang he at did. the same time how was how he was did. that was that an interesting thing because you don't see that very often it happens but it's not a common yeah. thing you know what though but it, it, it really he was really good at it man and so as a guitar player have played with many different drummers 
across my life, um, there's this thing that that drummers have or they don't have, right? They're just, there's just, they either got it or they don't, no matter how good they are. And Brad had it. And it was just kind of like this layback pocket that he had. And the one was always where it was supposed to be, but the groove was always where it was really supposed to be. So you could just, you didn't have to worry about the drums at all. No matter what he did, it was going to be okay. All right. And other guys that are better drummers uh, that don't have that feel, it's kind of like, you're playing with them and you got to kind of like make it feel good to play. And I, man, I hated guys like that. And there's a lot of them out there. Brad is definitely one of the few drummers that have him and Greg and one other guy, I'm not going to mention his name, fuck him. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Brad and Greg, man, they have this unbelievable pocket and just everything that, what happens is everything that you're supposed to hear, you hear, and everything that you're not supposed to hear just disappears. And you get what you need, and you're able to do your job to, to completely, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. Brad had that, and he could sing and do it at the same time, which was crazy. Yeah. And he wasn't, a, you know, a technical drummer. Uh, wasn't like, you know, rudimentary and all these things that these guys do. He wasn't that. He was just good and um, just really good and could sing. And so... The first record, The Better Life, the one that came out two years ago yesterday, Brad played the drums on that record, and he played them to tape. And so there's no beat detective. There was no, uh, there was none of that stuff that we have today. It wasn't electronic. Right. We did that two and a half inch tape at Ardent. Everything on that record you you heard, we played in in a take, or maybe the twentieth take, but we did it. You yeah. know what I mean. And so that was really cool. I'm glad that, and that was one, probably one of the last records besides the Foo Fighters guys that are doing everything to tape now that was done to tape because it was mixed on Pro Tools. So it went from two and a half inch tape into a, onto a hard drive and Toby Wright mixed it in the Pro Tools and then put it back on tape. Right. You know, um, which is That's a lot crazy of you brought up the Foo Fighters because Dave Grohl's one of those guys too that like he plays a lot of the drum beats on his I'm surprised he didn't sing. Well, I know like the first album they did, it was the same thing. Like he sang, he sang, he played the bass, he played the guitar, he played the drums. It's, it's a lost art. It's one of those guys, man. One of those guys. And, you know, and to do it to tape because tape, everything's punched. So they have to like, you'll see these, these, uh, the engineers, man, like they'll be sitting on the board like this and and listening (laughs) to the, and pro tools, man, everything is just like, all right, man, let's just do it again. Boom. All right, yeah. but, uh, all right, man, I tried one more time. Boom, boom. Okay, I got it. And then that guy can just take what you just did those two times and edit right there real time right. on the screen and put it perfect and be like, boom, all right, that one's done. Now, if that part ends up anywhere else in the song, then you can just grab it and put it there. So yeah. now you've done the whole song in like 30 seconds and it takes a bit of the, takes a bit of the, the, the challenge out of it, man, it's right. like not challenging him. You can accidentally do something really, really cool and, you know, have it become a, a integral part of a song. It didn't exist. And I don't know. I like, I like the, the tape and, and, um, but I also like pro tools. I mean, I can definitely, I can definitely, uh, taught myself how to run pro tools. Have you guys ever thought about going back and doing an album the old way? Or is that no, just kind of, I don't uh, think so. No, 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 because, uh, and I'll tell you why. Because the the amount of money it would take to do that, um, and this is going to sound like like I've given up on the music industry. And it's, this is not that at all. It's actually the opposite. But the amount of money it would take to do a record to tape with a producer in a studio, with having to go back and find guys that can still do that. There's not many of them out there that can still even do tape. There's a handful probably. Um, would take. 18, 19, probably 20 weeks in a studio at two, 3,000 bucks a day to, to do it. Um, so you're looking at, you know, half a million dollars just in studio time. By the time you got done putting that record out to the fans, it would probably be a $1.2, $1.5 million record before it even got promoted, just, just yeah. in, in man hours and, and work. Um, there's no way to really recoup that money anymore. There's no way to sell records to, to, to make that amount of money. Right. You know, so you, you would, you basically, you either got to do it in a closet for $25 or you don't make new music. Yeah. It's an interesting situation the the way that it's gone because you don't put out physical copies anymore. And now you're getting paid by streams instead of, I remember going down and spending 20 bucks on a CD every, you know, every week when I got paid and it was like, you can't do that anymore. Now it's like, I pay eight ninety nine and I can listen to whatever I want. 
you yeah. know, a month. And that's, and that's the way it is, man. And, uh, you know, the, what, what a day it was when I surrendered to that, you know, cause I yeah. fought it, man. Like everybody else, I was like, I was a CD guy and a record guy and a tape guy. And, and, uh, you know, my whole life, like, like I told you, I only had two cassettes for like five years when, you know, just two. And the only, the only two bands that, you know, it's really rough having a Queensryche record and an Iron Maiden record and not having anything else for, for years. I, I missed yeah. a lot of music, missed a lot of good stuff, but, um, really the romance of the smell and the, like, you know, when you, when you, when I finally did get records, opening them up and just living with everything on the inside was, a, was a big part of it. Yeah. That's not, that's kids don't even know what their, their favorite artists look like yeah. anymore, you know? And so it's, you, you, it's, it's really strange. And, and my daughters are, you know, they've never owned a CD. I remember opening up the damn book and reading the lyrics. I was always hoping that the lyrics were in there, right? They weren't always in there, but when they were, they weren't always in there. I know. Yeah, when they were, I was yeah. like, "Oh, this is great! I can re I can learn these words." <laughs> yeah, you could, and, and it was awesome. And you know, even though what I always notice is, even though, and I got to do this real time, even though the words were in there, you'd listen to them, you'd be, you know, you'd listen, and you'd find the little mistakes. There was always yeah. little like mistakes that the that the guy didn't sing, and so you, you know that the singer of the band wasn't translating the lyrics it was someone else right so when we did our record brad was like no i'm going to translate i'm going to write down so you got it you know what i mean but he had to fight for the because they were like no 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 we'll have somebody else do it and he was like no man i'll do it yeah. so he wrote them out and and uh and so i also on the better life on the on the tab books with the you know the, the numbers books i went over them and and made sure that the notes were right and all the the music was right instead of just letting the computer spit it yeah you know so Hey, I want to make sure that I'm cognizant of your time, and I didn't talk to you about that before. Are you Are you good? Are you still good for? I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. I'm good. All yeah, right. Because I have whatever. some more questions. I mean, there's some. You know, when you said that you were going to do this, I started diving into you a little bit more, and I I noticed some okay. really cool stuff that I thought. You know, you you have you have this routine where you go and do CrossFit pretty much every day. Are you still doing that? Is that still something oh, that yeah. you do? Can oh, you yeah. tell us why you kind of got into that? Because I think that it's a really neat story. Um, well, CrossFit, I was looking for something. I'd go to the gym and, you know, I, I could, all right, well, I'll just, I'll back up and I'll start. So I, I ballooned up to, um, oh, let me back up some more. Uh, when the band got signed and, you know, drugs and alcohol became prevalent, they were already kind of prevalent for me. I was kind of like, I was dabbling a bit, um, mostly just drinking, um, became a way of life, became a way of life. And right. I was 24 seven, 365 drinking or drugging. I was never, it, it became that before, like when I worked real jobs, you know, I couldn't show up at a industrial plant, you know, with fire around me all the time and, and people banging on shit and, and stalls and heavy equipment. I couldn't go there drunk. I couldn't go there using any, anything I had to be sober. Cause if not, you would die. But now I'm in a rock band and it's kind of like, it's okay now. It's okay right. to get up hungover and then start drinking again just to avoid the feeling of being sick. And then it's okay to use this to avoid coming down. And, and that becomes, like I said, 24-7. And I did that for about, oh, seven years straight. And then, you know, through the, all the trials and tribulations of a rock band and all the kind of ego and the things that the money and and all the things that the jealousy and all the things that happen in that, in that world, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that happen to an individual that, um, uh, that aren't really that comfortable. And you start using right. over that, that, those feelings, you yeah, to fix mean? it. feelings of, yeah. Cause you don't want to feel bad. You don't want to feel right. jealousy. You don't want to feel anger. You don't want to feel all these things. And when you're living in close quarters with people and there's money and there's all these different things that egos pop and, and, friction and, and but in order to stay in, all right, in order for the band to stay on the road you have to fix that shit or you have to figure out a way to get through it right i got you know just got hammered and that's what i did and um got, uh, it, it came to a head um i forget like i don't know oh eight maybe something like that came to a head and i went and i got clean and when i did man i gained probably 100, 150 pounds, something like that. I just went from, well, more than that. I, I, I'm not more than that. I, I went from like probably 185, 190 to 287, almost 300 pounds, probably 
probably got to 300 before I started losing weight. And then, um, so I changed my diet and discovered, you know, trying to work out. I was trying to run, I was trying to go to the gym and, uh, some weight came off, but it really didn't, I couldn't really go work out. I'd go to the gym for like a week or two and then I wouldn't go back and I was spending all this money at goals. I was spending all this money, all these gym memberships and, and trainers and just different things. And I'd get all excited about something, but I couldn't really do it. Um, and it kind of sucked, man, but, but I was do, had some work done at my house and there's a guy <laughs> showed up every day. He was jacked, man. He's like, he's ripped veins and everything. And, and he was wearing every day he had a different CrossFit shirt on and it would say uh-huh. CrossFit, whatever, CrossFit, Rhode Island, CrossFit, this CrossFit, that. And I asked him, man, I didn't know anything about it. I was like, man, what's CrossFit? And he's like, man, he's like, I could try to explain it to you. He's like, but what are you doing tomorrow morning? He's like, why don't you just go with me? I'll take you to my CrossFit gym. And he did, man. And, uh, I've been every single week since then, since that day, that dude completely changed my life. What I like about CrossFit, not only is it always hard because it is never gets easy, but there's always a coach and there's always a class of people that are doing the same thing. And it's, so it becomes about this community of people. Um, it's really crazy. And I like I bought into that whole thing, you know. Yeah. I went and got certified as a, a level one in what do they, what do they call them? Level one uh, certification. You got it's tricky the way that you got to word it. Um, but I became certified to coach um, CrossFit. I really I do very little of that, but um, but I can I guess. Um, but I went all in, man. Both feet. I lost a hundred and about 130 pounds, 32 pounds to get exact, you know, I went from 287 to 163. So do that math. You know what I mean? Well, and you look, if you go back and you look at like when you kind of ballooned up or whatever, you don't look like the same person. I mean, it's like, holy smokes, where'd this guy come from? You know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it is crazy, man. And, and, And my kids were and my my little girl, you know, kids they don't have a filter. So my I think parents she looked at a picture of me. It's a picture of me and Brad and Greg, the 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 soccer um, the soccer goalie for the USA women's team. Hope Solo, I think was her name. Uh-huh. And um, we're, we're we did a uh, one of those shows out in Lopez, George Lopez show. She was there, and uh, we took a picture. I was had this jacket on, and my belly out coming out of the jacket. And my little girl was like, "Dad, look how fat you are." And I was like, oh, my God, like, that's when it sunk in that I was like, I was probably going to die from from that. Like, I was going to die from being overweight is, is yeah. what basically amounted to. So that's when I started trying to figure it out, man. And, uh, well, I, and I, I enjoyed did, I, watching I, I that. Like I, I enjoyed watching that because I, it just kind of it seemed like you you have this routine and you know, listen to that other interview I listened to the other day. You were talking about like routines and how you pre before you play. And it's just like. To me, that's the way I am. It's like routine is something that keeps me doing what I need to do and keeps me in shape and keeps me in, you know, that yeah. structure is something that I've always loved. And that's yeah. what I like about it. You know, and I think for me, uh, that structure and the routine is, is a big part of it. But also there's this like there's this wealth of knowledge that exists that you got to go get. Um, and once I figured out that being in shape wasn't about getting lucky or about good genes as for a guy like me, as much as it was going to be about for like figuring out the routine, figuring out what my body was going to respond to and how to make my body do different things. And like, there's this, all this information that I didn't have that I had to go find. And that's what drove me. Cause that's what drives me. When I find something I want to learn about, I go for it. Yeah. And, uh, and I went for, I went for the healthy thing and, and, uh, and learned a lot, man. So I, I became a, uh, they call this uh, company called Working Against Gravity. I became a Working Against Gravity uh, diet coach, mm-hmm. and you know, paid whatever the the money to go to school and everything. And I'd get up at about three thirty in the morning every morning and do like five hours of class online to take these little tests to become certified. And here I got the book right here, man. Like this is all the information. How do I show it to you? I'm thinking this, but this is like yeah. all the stuff I printed all of it out, like page by page, and like I jumped right in it and learned how to do that stuff. And so now I can help other people that want to lose a little bit of weight or want to get, you know, if you want abs or you want to, you know, you want to build muscle, burn fat. Like there's a way to do all those things, and it's not starving yourself. You know, yeah. it's not it's not being hungry twenty four seven. Being hungry is part of it, but not 
starving. So, you know, there's a way to do all those things. And I figured out how to do them and was able to get abs, you know, yeah. and was able to become an insane shape at one point, man. Probably I'm not as lean as I used to be, but I don't really care. I just, I feel great. But yeah. at one point, man, I was like, like ripped, completely ripped. And I didn't think that I would ever be able to achieve like that, like that amount of body fat. Like I had basically, I was basically like probably six, six or five or six percent body fat. It was like nuts. Which is crazy. Cause like, I, I know being, I'm a bigger dude, like I'm six, three yes. and I, I weigh about 285 right now, but mm -hmm. you never think like when the body, the body style that you had before was similar to like kind of where I've been at. Mm -hmm. And I would never think that I could make that happen. Like I, like six, six pack abs. I mean, it, it was, or well, I think I saw a picture the other day. It was more than six pack abs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dude. Well, Hey man, like I was in, I was completely jacked. They, they wag the working against gravity. They did a, um, they sent out like a filmmaker and he followed us around and, and he went to CrossFit with me and, and uh, went to the, uh, it was on the road. So he went to catering with me and I'm like weighing my food and showing people how yeah, I'd like did That's, that's, and, uh, yeah. And that's what I saw. That was the one that I saw. And it was just like, yeah, this is like, this is my whole life. I mean, cause I've been on a diet my whole life. I mean, that's just the way yeah. it is. And it's like, that's, that's what it is. You got to do those things. It's tough. It looks like it's a little over the top, but the fact of the matter is, is if you have, you know, the kind of body type that I have or what you similarly had, it's like, you have to be really dialed or it's not yeah. going to happen. If you want those things, you got to be dialed. Yeah. Especially if you come from a place of bad habits and, and no one has ever taught you how to eat properly. And like my parents didn't teach me how to eat. They, they just, you know, everything was bacon and fried and out of a package. And that's how we did it. And, uh, you know, when you, when you come from that, that part of, uh, that lifestyle into this lifestyle, you have to, you know, you've got to pay attention to every gram of everything and pay it, you know, cause it's not sustainable. Abs like that are not sustainable for guys like for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'd have to stay on that diet 24 seven and it's almost impossible. I can do it for, I can do it for 12 weeks. I can do it for 18, 20, you know, 20 weeks, but then I got to get a break, man. You know, right. it's just like, wow, but it was fun and I'm glad I did it. And uh, I probably will do it again eventually. Probably I'm hoping this summer to, to cut down, but I, I, I'm, I'm in, I'm in bulking now. So I'm working, I'm lifting, I'm yeah. eating more. So yeah. I'm a bigger guy at the moment. And when I, when I trim down, hopefully I'll have more muscle. So we'll see, see how it works. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I was, I, I can, um, I'm glad that I can do it to the point where like my foot's almost on a gas pedal. I can control my weight a bit and let it let off and control it and let off. And then I can right. suck on up and, and be uh, super lean if I want to, which just takes a lot of effort, but yeah, yep. I can do it. got to put in the work. That's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah, man. But there's other people out there that just eat what the hell they want and they got abs, but you know what? Good for them. Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I want to ask you, we, I have one question that I ask every time, but I got a couple of Three Doors Down ones, because obviously you're the guitarist for Three Doors Down, and we didn't talk a whole lot about that, but I think that people know that. Like, I feel like the success story is the fact that where you came from, and I really enjoyed listening to that story. Um, what do you think is the most underrated song that Three Doors Down has done? Ooh, wow. There's a couple of them, man. I think so. I think Life of My Own would have been like is, is would have been a really huge song and i think behind those eyes i think was a um uh was pretty underrated i think that um i think the timing and what was going on with it at the time was was really tough hey uh my son's up so he's gonna be he's getting ready to talk to him he's four. Oh, you're all right it's all good <laughs> what's up I've buddy I've got my uh, one month old sitting downstairs with my eight year old who's not feeling well today, and they've been trying to be quiet the whole time I'm up here. So, <laughs> yes, right there. Yeah, yeah, he's he's just got out of bed, so he'll sit beside me and play on his iPad. Nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, I think behind those eyes is probably the for me the most underrated song. Oh, excuse me. Life of My Own, Behind Those Eyes as well, but but Life of My Own, I think, was, was I think that I, that song should have been a single, I think. Yeah. And also, um, Time of My Life, man, like the, the lead song on that on that record, I think should have been a single, and it wasn't, because we went with When I'm Young, or When You're Young, which, I don't know, that's a strange time. Strange it's kind of weird, you have to pick what, what 
you don't usually have a whole lot of say in that, right? The producer is the one who's kind of going, Hey, this is the one that's going to make the money. This is the, this is the the banger right here. You know what happens, man? And this is the honest truth. Like there's so many people pulling strings for that. Yeah. So you got all the people at the label. And when I say all the people that label all the way from the president, all the way down to the A&R guy, like, and there's a lot of people in between right. 20, 30 people in between. There's marketing people, there's lawyers, there's all these other people. They all have an opinion, all of them. And it's not always your opinion. <laughs> and right. you got to kind of wade those waters. And, and if you want a song, like for instance, on time, on that record, time, of my life, like, I don't think time, of my life was even an option to yeah. be a single. And that's the only song we play off that record. If we ever, if we even play one, we don't play any of the other ones. We don't play When You're Young, which is a single. We don't play any of that. What was the other one? Every Time You Go. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't play those songs live because they didn't do crap. Um, yeah. That song, that record for us was like a flop. And it was a good record, man. And there was a lot of great songs on that. No one ever really, really heard. But I think what happened was all those people started pulling. They heard a song that was similar to a song that did well. And then that's enough. That's enough for them. They don't, yeah. they, they don't care what the fan base is going to think when they hear it. They just go, this is the one, this is the one, this is the one. And it just gets pushed, 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 pushed until eventually everyone just goes, okay. You yeah. know? And so that's what happens. But, uh, you know, throughout the years and the success of, of three doors, like that was never an issue. Like every song picked went boom. And just one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, like 13 number ones or something crazy like that. And, um, you know, pop, pop hits and rock hits and alternative hits. And just like, it was like, they just kept coming. And so. So what's your, what's your favorite song to play? Um, hmm. I think the better life is fun, man. Cause it's just like, it's, it's like a, it's a rock track, man. And you can just really open up and just, and. I don't know from from a guitar player standpoint, and one like like I'm a I'm not like a technical. Hey, buddy, Graham, chill for a minute. I'm not like a technical guitar player. I'm more yeah. like a physical bang yeah. on the guitar type guy. Um, so I want that song that allows me to open up and just be like and and to feel it here, to feel it up top, and not not just here. And then um, which I don't know if it, if you understand that, but like. No, I, I mean, I, it's, I, it's one of those things like it, it, it reminds me of like before the football game, right? Like you're getting jacked up and you want to be able to, you know, perform at your best. And so when you're doing that, you're in the moment you're really, you're really after it. Yeah. It's like, and you know what? And furthermore, like this is another in the moment thing. Like remember we playing baseball or softball as a kid and you hit that home run and, but you don't even feel the yeah. the ball. That's in the moment right there because yeah. because you could you, you're you're conscious of the end of a bat that's in your hands and bang and you know you're you're that's a that's what it's like it's yeah, when you I can't had, feel the ball yeah, yeah I had that moment I've only I only hit one home run in high school and I'll tell you what I hit that ball and I was at second base and I ran into the guy who was on second base and he says slow down you hit it out and that's just a that's the <laughs> yeah that's that's fun, a great man. feeling yeah what a good feeling man hey you know what you, you I, I hit a bunch of home runs, but um, I I knew like when I knew by the sound that it was out. Yeah, I'm just you know, but yeah, that's what happens after you hit a few of them. I just had the one. I hit a lot of doubles, and I was too I was too big yeah. to to get a triple. So it was <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I think for me, like I didn't play high school baseball like on the high school baseball team because my football coaches hated it. So I always got to I always played like in the like in the the other the I summer league. The like Babe, well, Babe Ruth here is what they called it, but it Legion. wasn't. It wasn't Babe Ruth. It was like a. It was a different. It was it was it was different because it was every, everything was sponsored. So it was like yeah, I played on a sponsored team. Yeah, a lot of kids would. Yeah, and they recruited. So I mean, we were good, but it wasn't like, you know, it's like travel teams. Travel yeah. baseball. Does that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I coach baseball. So it's from a football coaches, but yeah. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to ask you this last question before we get there. What What do you got going on? Is there anywhere that you do want people to follow you? Is there anything we can give a shout out to? What are you, what are you looking for? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, Um, it's, it's funny. Just recently, I started a gun business. I don't know how people feel about guns. I don't really care. Um, I love them. And uh, I think, you know, in America, it's important that um, that we exercise our, you know, our rights as, as far as that goes. So I, I build uh, custom 
rifles and I have a company. It's called MTR. I was going to say, that's your rifles. company, right? Yep. Yeah. And uh, I started it just, uh, just to see how it would do, just to see if people responded to it. And um, I sold every gun I built. And uh, in three months, um, I sold probably close to 18 or 19 guns. And um, without a website, without any sort of advertising or any sort of plugging like I'm doing right now, like, like yeah. shameless plugging, which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I appreciate but, you being um, here. <laughs> hold on, buddy. Yeah. Hold on a second. Hold on one second. Yep. Right it's okay. It's all right. All right. It's okay, buddy. It's all right. I'm not going to break it. He thinks I'm going to break uh, my, my daughter's computer because my computer's sitting on top of hers. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it happens. It's okay. I straightened it out. But, yep. um, but yeah, it's um, MTR, Middle Tennessee Rifle, and it's um, uh, um, mtrgunworks.com. Um, if people want to go check it out. Right now, I'm out of stock on all guns and lowers, but in the next couple of weeks, I'll, I'll be back because, uh, you know, gun business booms. So I don't, I'm not able to keep guns, uh, rifles, and I'm not able to keep lowers and stock people buy them as fast as I get them. So, yeah. And that's, you, that's on your Instagram account too, right? Your website is on your Instagram. Yeah. It's on my Instagram yeah. account. They can go there and just click on it and check it out. You know, I sell hats and stuff like that. And I sell, I have a lot of parts in stock. I just don't have any like actual lowers or rifles in stock, but yeah. it won't be long. It won't be long. So, That's awesome. But I build really nice ones, and I build them one at a time. Um, I don't and like have a stock gun that I sell. I build each one for each end of each person as they order, and um, I do it myself. I do the test fire. If they're in town where I live, they can come do the test fire with me. Great, stop. Okay. And uh, and that's how it goes, it's, and it's pretty cool, and I love it. It's uh, it's good work, and they can't take it away from me. Yeah, you know that's that's they awesome. can't tell me that I can't do it because uh, I might. I don't know. They can't tell me that I can't do it. So, yeah. Yep. Well, Hey, you know, it's been great having you on and I appreciate you taking the time. I mean, the whole hour out of your day is it's, it's very, you know, I'm very grateful for it. Um, the show is called shaping success and we talk about, you know, what success is and, and basically I, I want to know how you would define it because I think it's different for every single person. So how would you define success? Okay. I mean, I actually thought about this a little bit because um, because you mentioned that to me before when we were like just through correspondence. Um, To me, I think success um, for me is just the ability to do what you want, when you want, as you want. And um, no matter how much money you make, if if money is a part of that, I don't money is not a part of that for me. I think being successful is just being living your life the way that you want to live it and being able to do that. And, um, you know, that's what I think success is for me. And not, not only that, but being able to, being able to earn it to the point that it's like that. Does that make sense? So I think that you've made a pretty good example of that throughout this interview where it's, you know, everything that you do, you put your, you put your best foot forward and you do everything you can to just, you know, be successful in what you do. So I think that's great. Yeah. You know, I heard, I heard a guy say one time that everything in business is positioning, but I don't think everything in business is positioning. I think everything in life that you want to do is positioning. So being ready for the opportunity when the opportunity comes is what is, is what you got to do. So you got to be ready for many different things because the opportunity that you think is coming may not be the one that's coming. Right? Oh, yep. Well, hey, th- th- thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate it. You know, I reached out on Instagram and you were very responsive. And uh, I just, I'm super appreciative to get to talk to you, get to know you, get to kind of tell a story that not very many people have heard. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Well, you have, you have a good day and th- thank you very much. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I, it was really cool. Yep. Thank you. All right. We'll talk What's to up? you later. All right, Bye, everyone. Bro. I'll see you. All right, everyone, until next time, I challenge you to find the shape of your success.